The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul and Stuart, we're here. Hi. This is our, our <laughs> triple distilled pilot. We're talking about DVT-PE. As a reminder to the audience, uh, this episode will be available for CE credit uh, for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. You can, you can sign up for a free account with any email address. And uh, with that, Paul, can you tell people, what is it that we do on this show? I... I have to before we before I do that. I have to say I love Stewart's low energy interruption this time around. I feel like that really just <laughs> it just made it super sad, um, which I kind of enjoyed. It, it brought me down, and I think I needed that because I was just there's so much joy in my heart in these happy days of quarantine and the, the world ending. Um, oh, but with that, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. Uh, we often use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Tonight, we're doing it a little bit differently. We're actually going to be recapping some expert interviews that we've done in past shows. We're going to distill them down into just the absolute necessary things that you need to know to treat venous uh, thromboembolic disease. We'll talk about the diagnosis. We'll talk about the treatment. We'll talk about duration of treatment and then maybe some bad jokes in there. I, I make no promises. That's right. Gentlemen, this uh, this is a pilot episode. We're going to try to keep this tight. As you know, we we do tend to run long, but... We're talking about DVT-PE. We had two great guests. There was Dr. Michael Streif. He is a hematologist-oncologist at Hopkins. And then there was Oren, Oren Friedman, who is a pulmonologist, a critical care doctor, a PE expert, at uh, now at Cedars-Sinai. And we talked with them about DVT-PE. And we, we're just going to go through our favorite take-home points there in case you didn't have time to listen to both episodes and so, those were episodes 154 and 92 for those who want to listen to the long form. Thank you, Stuart. You're welcome. That's what All I'm right. here for. So the, the first part about this, uh, we talked with Dr. Strife about his approach to the diagnosis of DVT and PE. He actually leans pretty heavily on the D-dimer um, because it's a very sensitive test. And he at his institution, he could get it very quickly. And you know, one of the points for me... And I can't stress this enough that PE is just, it's a tricky diagnosis. And we talked about with this with him, how it could just be the person might just have a cough. Not every patient with PE is tachycardic, hypoxic, hypotensive. Uh, Paul, yeah. any anything specific you remember from this or any points about the diagno diagnostic piece? Um, from the diagnostic piece, no, I think low low suspicion for it. And then I also, not that this is going to be super helpful for our listeners, but I found it validating that he found VQ scans largely as useless as I do. Like, I feel like it's, I had a sense that they all came back indeterminate, and it turns out the data actually seemed to back me up a yeah. little bit on that. So He, just, he said about 30% 30 indeterminate. Yeah. So they're, they're about as not helpful as, as they tend to be. So really, the, the tests of choice are the ones that you think that they would be. So once you have your positive D-dimer or high clinical suspicion, then chasing down CT angiography for for PE or ultrasound for for DVT are, are really are, are the ways to chase it down. So it was just a validation for the most part, um, yeah. at least early and, on. And back to our uh, 
our acute kidney injury episode and talking with Joel about this, uh, the great Dr. Toff, he basically said, I mean, if, if someone needs a CT pulmonary angiogram and you, you're, or if they need a CT for a diagnosis that's a serious diagnosis, then you, you just have to get it. And right. if the kidneys fail from that, you know, we, you deal with it, but you, it shouldn't be something that just makes you just not get it. Um, if, if you think someone really needs it. So yeah. We we did talk about the Wells criteria too, and I'm not sure if you guys remember this, but those are really for outpatient or emergency department patients when you're using either the Wells criteria for DVT or PE, which is something I hadn't remembered. So right. if if it's a hospitalized patient, it's really just like your clinical gestalt. You can still use the D-dimer to decide if you're going to send a test or not. But well, wait, we also talked a little bit about the Geneva score. So I, I yeah, they're validated in different patient populations. I tend to use the the uh, modified or revised Geneva score for inpatients because it has, it's a little bit more uh, sensitive for the diagnosis of PE than, than the Wells criteria. As you may recall, the cutoff for the modified uh, Geneva is a heart rate greater than 95 gives them a score of five, which puts them immediately in the intermediate category And for patient that for which you don't have an alternative diagnosis that automatically suggests at that point you need to do some further evaluation. That's great. I, I actually haven't used the Geneva score much. Maybe I'll, I'll have to think about that next time Next time it comes up for me, which shouldn't be too long. Yeah. Anything else the about the diagnosis? I mean, there, there really wasn't much physical exam. It's, it's, it's mainly on the history. Um, I guess the one other thing I had in here, we talked about the whole, whole leg ultrasound versus the uh, versus the targeted ultrasound, which is mm-hmm. just from the hip down to the knee, essentially, where uh, where they're not going below the the popliteal fossa. And I he was mentioning that in Europe they they generally don't tend to go down below the knee because they're not really treating clots routinely that don't go above the knee, which I, I thought was interesting because I mostly see whole leg. Paul, is that what you see in your institution? Almost exclusively, yeah. I don't see just above. Like I I think. Exception is point of care ultrasound when you're doing a quick look, but I would always, at least with my limited skill set, I would always validate that with an actual um, formal ultrasound, which would be a whole leg. Right. So for most of our listeners in the U.S., probably they're getting whole leg ultrasound, which means they're going from, you know, all the way down to the ankle. But uh, just just look at the report and make sure, because if you're suspicious and you want to know about the caffeine, you'll have to specifically ask for it if your institution doesn't routinely do that. The only other thing I would want to piggyback onto the onto that is, is so you're saying history is is instrumental in diagnosing DVT or PE. One of the things that we oftentimes overlook are um, non-prescribed supplements, especially those that that uh, uh, state that they increase testosterone production or whatever. At that uh-huh. point, I think it's important to make sure you're asking what they're taking that's not prescribed as well. Because yeah. I've had several patients that are taking testosterone boosters, whatever that means, um, who've been admitted for DVT or PE. Well, that's a nice transition. I was going to ask, yeah, so I, I thought that was a fascinating point. Um, I, what other historical sort of things that came up in these episodes did you guys find interesting? Because there were a couple of things that I had not thought much about before actually hearing these. I think he said surgery was the strongest, and it's like 100 times the risk of yeah. the average person, and it and it tapers off over weeks to months afterwards. So yeah. that that should be one of the main things. Well, the regression coefficient in the modified Geneva surgery is a zero point seven eight versus say active malignancy is zero point four five. So um, if you look at like raw numbers for those who are diagnosed with PE, certainly those who have had surgery is going to be a a larger 
like risk pool. But if you look at those who are at the highest risk, it's still going to be uh, active malignancy. I liked two things I thought interesting. I had not heard the number before about obesity, just doubling your risk for VTE, which was more substantial than I thought. I know we tend to throw that around a lot, um, but it's that's that's not yeah. nothing. And then he made the point also about OCPs, which I thought was really interesting, too, where it's the occurrence tends to happen shortly after initiation. So if someone's been on oral contraceptives for a couple of years, that actually he becomes less concerned about that as a possible triggering agent for, for VTE, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So once we've diagnosed, uh, we've gotten our D-dimer, it's elevated, we did our, uh, and I should mention, you, the age-adjusted D-dimer is generally for patients over 50, you take their age, you multiply it by 10. So for a 52-year-old, 520 would be the expected you know, cutoff for a D-dimer, and you can potentially avoid scanning too many patients if you if you try to age adjust your D-dimer. Um, so Make sure you adjust that for whatever units for yes, your yes, institution. For <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, look at the units too. Um, that's for the, the traditional cutoff of a D-dimer of 500. You know, that's, you, multiply, you multiply the age times 10. And, but yeah, you're right. If you have like the 0.5 units, you got you to gotta look at your institution. All right, so once we've diagnosed it, we have to classify it. And Dr. Friedman, he gave us a lot of very good information about how to triage patients with PE. One of them that he likes to use is the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines. And massive PE is pretty obvious. Massive is just the person has hypotension because of a pulmonary embolism. Anything else is is submassive. And there was a couple ways that he talked about how, because our big question is always like, can we send any of these people home? Can we treat them as an outpatient? And he gave us two different scores that you could think about, uh, the SPESI score and the HESTIA criteria. Mm -hmm. um, so Stuart, how in, in practice, if someone's coming into uh, Cashlack South with a pulmonary embolism, how do you all use the SPESI score? So, so we use the SPESI score to determine if the patient needs to be admitted, number one. So if it's a zero, it's pretty easy. You can, uh, at least our institution, we can start a direct anti or oral anticoagulant in the correct patient and uh, disposition them home. Um, anything with a score of one or greater suggests a uh, much higher risk. This is the reason why we use SPESI. It's so straightforward. Uh, and for those patients, we admit them for at least observation to make sure they don't have RV strain or anything that might suggest RV strain, which itself suggests uh, acute increase in pulmonary pressures and uh, is highly suggestive of a either a, a massive or submassive PE in those patients. So I think the SPESI includes uh, low blood pressure, high heart rate. It has uh, age greater than 80 and I think maybe history of cancer. And I, I can't remember if I'm – but there's no labs needed. Nope. And there's a history nice of cardiopulmonary thing. disease is the other criteria. Good memory. Yeah. But, yeah, so, yeah. but no, no labs. Um, well, except for the arterial oxyhemoglobin. I, well, I feel like that's not the simplified version. That's, that, that's that not is, the simplified it, yes. it is. It is. is it, but it's maybe just, it's the uh, saturation, right? The saturation. Uh, but yeah, you it's can, less than 90%. Yeah. So so you can use the SPESI. Um, if, if it's a person coming in – and they have an SPESI score greater than one, it's probably someone you want to admit unless you have, for some other reason, your gestalt tells you this person's going to be just fine. The HESTIA criteria has some overlap. Also, you don't really need labs other than knowing in general if their creatinine is above or below 30 uh, or their right. EGFR, sorry, is above yeah, yeah. or below 30. And, we uh, hear you. Creatinine of 30, I'd probably scream. Right. 
So, so the question is who can be sent home? And it's, it's really younger people, really stable vital signs. They look comfortable. Dr. Friedman said like, if someone looks sick from a PE, he puts a ton of, of stock into just like how the person looks. So if you have the young person that's texting and uh, is not requiring supplemental oxygen, they're walking up to the bathroom or they're grabbing some apple juice from the fridge in the ER and, uh, you know, they're feeling fine, then that's potentially someone you can send home on a DOAC. But uh, there were some things that heightened. Paul, do you remember any of the heightened, uh, what like what he said made him really worried about people? Well, I, I, one thing historically that I thought was actually really interesting, and I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at or not, is if someone comes in with syncope as a presenting complaint, that obviously sort yeah. of uh, makes him incredibly nervous too. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I, I think also elevated lactate, he kind of threw in there for funsies, which I don't know, we talked about sort of other metrics, but I think those two things made him particularly nervous, even if the other criteria didn't quite trip the alarms, that still was enough to make him at least be on edge and nervous about that particular patient. Absolutely. Yeah, that was something that I hadn't really thought about. And I, I remember there was that other, we've talked about this article, I think on a hotcakes before. Yeah. I don't want to open this can of worms, but like <laughs> how many how many patients that come in with syncope actually have a pulmonary embolism? There was that one Italian study that found like uh, a very high percentage, I think it was like 20%. Yeah. Of patients, and I think there was a lot of problems and feedback about that. But anyway, if you if you diagnose someone with PE and they have had syncope, that's something that should make you think that this was a a much bigger clot, and that that person was very sick, at least at the point, sick enough to pass out from it. Um, You don't have to check lactate routinely in people with PE, but if it's elevated, you should be worried. And uh, anybody with RV strain, which you can see either from the C from the CT where they can give you an RV to LV um, like ratio, or uh, just if you happen to have an echo already, maybe someone did a bedside echo and it looks like there's RV strain, then right. you need to be worried about those people. And I would not send home anybody with RV strain until they've been stable for a while. Right, right. And I think it's a good segue into just treatment because mm-hmm. the first thing you want to know is whether or not they have a massive or submassive PE so for your mass, your submassive PE with your RV strain positive biomarkers, the data that we have really just looks at unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparins. And a lot of this is in regards to the fact these patients may, may have a, a need for catheter directed thrombolysis. There are some studies that have been published recently that look at apixaban or rivaroxaban, uh, for treatment after catheter directed thrombolysis, but there's really nothing in the literature that looks at DOACs for treatment of submassive PE. Yeah. Um, so the treatment really at this point for submassive is still going to be your unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparins. Right. So in the, in the European society, cardio cardiology guidelines, they have low risk. That's the person that's like texting, no vital sign abnormalities, intermediate risk. These people have either positive biomarkers like troponins up, or they have a positive uh, elevated BMP, or they have some sign mm-hmm. of RB strain. Um, and then massive, of course, is just per- person is hypotensive. Um, yeah, that, so, that you're probably coding that patient. And both of our guests, uh, Dr. Strife and Dr. Friedman, both said that in the hospital, they tend to favor low molecular weight heparin and unfa- IV unfractionated heparin just because the procedurists have a lot of familiarity and comfort with those meds. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they understand the on off of those medications. And that's why those, that's the big reason why those are used in the hospital rather than DOACs. But if you're sending right. a low risk person home, Stuart, you would use a DOAC, right? You wouldn't. That's right. That's right. 
Um, the, the data that we have uh, really shows that a PIC span is probably the best option for DOAC for these patients. Um, the best trial that we have with this is the uh, Amplify trials published in 2013. To this date, I really, I don't even know if these patients were in the emergency department or outpatient clinic or urgent care. I actually look at the supplement material. I still can't figure that one out. But uh, it does show the trial itself um, shows that the outcomes data for apixaban is quite impressive when you're talking about outpatient treatment for pulmonary embolism. And there is some data looking at other factor 10 inhibitors as well. But the consensus across the board is that apixaban is the treatment of choice if you're going to use a DOAC for these patients. Yeah. And, and Dr. Strife, he, he prefers apixaban. He said he, he likes it. He likes the pharmacology of it, but for some patients, uh, you don't have a choice. And I think in practice, what most people do and what he said he does, uh, if rivaroxaban is covered by their insurance, instead of apixaban, right. he'll, he'll go with apixaban. Um, and those, those are the main, uh, you mean other way around. I'm sorry. If, yeah. If, if, if Apixaban, is covered, he, he covered just gives them what's covered. That. Exactly. exactly. Yes. So for these, for patients in the hospital, Stuart, so you're bringing them in, you're putting them on IV unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin, and then, and then sending them out. I think we should talk a little bit about treatment duration as well. So, uh, we, we did talk to Dr. Strife about this and, um, he basically said most patients, uh, should be treated for three months if they had a a clear precipitant and mm-hmm. it was, uh, and, and they no longer have that risk factor, say they had a surgery. Um, and as the, after three months out from the surgery, you could potentially stop it. But we did talk, we had an interesting conversation about people with unprovoked because I think in my, historically, I was always a little confused, but he was pretty clear that he just favors, if, if someone truly had an unprovoked, like you can't figure out why they had a D, uh, a DVT, he favors just lifelong anticoagulation for those patients, um, unless you have a really good reason to stop. Do you want to talk about the HERDU calculator? Yeah, I think I think we should. So for men, for men, there is not really any risk calculator, and men have men are at an increased risk compared to women. So there's really no way to tell which men will recur and which won't. But the the risk is high enough that there's you can never just tell a patient that had an unprovoked if they're a man that that it's going to be safe for them. I think he said the best you could do is you could check a D-dimer while they're still on anticoagulation. And if if that's not elevated, I think he used 250 or something as the cutoff, then you know you could tell them, well, right now your D-dimer is not elevated. We, we could try and stop, but you're going to just be at a higher lifetime risk than the average person. But for women, Stuart, this, this Herduke 2 calculator, tell us about it a little bit. Yeah, it just tells you whether you're low risk or not. Um, when it comes to uh, having a recurrent um, DVT or PE. And really, it doesn't take much to make you not low risk. So if you're overweight or if you're in the obese category and over the age of 65, for example, you're considered not low risk. And for those patients, it's recommended at that point to talk about continuing anticoagulation. Yeah. So you do need a D-dimer. Um, they, they ask about post-thrombotic signs, like if they have yeah. Well, you don't necessarily need a D-dimer because if you're obese and over the age of 65, you're already not low risk. Okay. It's one of those things where it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter if that's the... Pre- okay. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I just like... I'll be honest, Stuart. I just like the idea of checking a D-dimer for somebody that's uh, still on, on treatment. I, I haven't done it. Hey, I haven't I, done I, it. I don't but... blame you. I don't blame you. Yeah. It seems Paul, either potentially any... satisfying or infuriating, depending on what you're <laughs> shooting for. So, I mean, I'm a little bit scared myself. 
So Stuart, we also talked about some of the ones that I always forget and I always have to look up. So there's calf DVT, how long right. do you treat that? And or do you treat it and how long do you treat it? He, he said, we do treat it. So well, yeah, in his opinion. In his opinion, Because yes. this, is, this is all based off of expert opinion for exactly. calf DVT. Uh, and it varies anywhere from six to 12 weeks. But especially if the patient's symptomatic with their calf right. DVT, right. you'd want to consider treating them at that point. Yeah. But... Yeah, I and think it's just other, hard to to ignore a DVT and not treat. Right, it. and the other the other one's the upper extremity DVT. I mean, I, I had a loved one of mine who who just had had an IV line placed, um, not a pick line, and ended up having a large DVT in the upper extremity. Was subsequently treated for um, for three months on uh, low molecular weight heparins when this individual had an upper extremity DVT. So the, the recommendation is is three months for upper, upper extremity DVT or until a line's removed. So if someone has like a chronic, uh, you know, they, they have a pick uh, and the pick is going to be in there for many, many months, you would treat them um, until that line is removed. Yeah. So that it could be much longer than three months. And so it's a, but a minimum of three months. Even if you remove right. the line after a week, you would still keep them on for three months. Correct. Yeah. All right. I feel like this might make a good place to transition. So we're talking about unprovoked. Um, VTE. And I'm wondering which patients weren't the million dollar workup. I know this is something that brought Matt, you great joy. Um, yeah, this so. brought me great joy because <laughs> Dr. Strife was just like, nope, don't do it. No, uh, uh, cancer, cancer workup. No, uh, thrombophilia workup. No, don't do it. Uh, he did give the one caveat, which was antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. If you suspect that, then, then you could do a workup for that. And those patients and don't convince yourself to suspect that. Just yeah. The <laughs> well, and those patients should be younger patients uh, with arterial venous clotting that just doesn't quite make sense. Like they haven't had a surgery or anything, or or they clot. You know, just they, they've had recurrent clots, or they had one clot that you just couldn't uh, explain. Or mm-hmm. uh, a woman who's having recurrent pregnancy complications, um, like or loss of pregnancy after the ten, like the first trimester. Those would all be people that you would suspect, uh, but that's that's really the minority of our patients that that have clotting. So, you know, if you have like a seventy five year old with an unprovoked, like you know, you don't don't bother with the thrombophilia workup. <laughs> yeah, chase down lupus aggressively, just really really go after <laughs> but, it. And then IVS next. I know all of us see that done uh, routinely. That all people are 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 yeah. I was going to say the only other thing that I wanted to add in are the special populations for anticoagulation. Because this is something that I routinely have to discuss with residents, trainees, and also staff physicians. Because uh, there's a concern, especially with uh, morbidly obese patients and using some of the newer DOACs. Pre- previously, it was recommended that patients with a BMI greater than 40, you consider avoiding these DOACs because of concerns with decreased absorption. Um, and the, and not really decreased absorption, but decreased efficacy because of the total uh the total body uh, volume was much higher than for someone with BMI less than 40. There have been two recent publications looking at this with, uh, and they include patients with BMIs greater than 60 as well, and found that it was non-inferior for these patients and the risk for um, having a recurrent VTE, DVT in this patient population suggested that using the DOACs are safe and effective in this patient population. Both these trials were published, published by the American Society of Hemostasis, ASH, um, and we we can include those links in the show notes for this one. And we talked about with Dr. Strife, he he believes edoxaban was the first one that was studied in patients right. with malignancy, 
but apixaban, rivaroxaban, you can use any of them. When you look them up, they do have the caveat for some reason. I'm, I'm actually not sure of the physiology maybe, but rivaroxaban supposedly for patients with upper GI cancers, rivaroxaban uh, seems like there's increased risk of bleeding. So you should use apixaban in those patients if you can, yeah. which, you know, something that I wasn't aware of, but Dr. Strife mentioned, and uh, I've seen it in the literature since. Yeah. And I think this is more a relation of the peak rivaroxaban level, um, given the dosing of, of rivaroxaban. Since it's a once a day dosing. Yeah. And it's a higher dosage too. Yeah. No, one of the reasons, so apixaban actually has a longer half-life than rivaroxaban. Most people don't, don't realize that. They think that rivaroxaban has a longer half-life. And so when they're looking at some of the safety data on rivaroxaban, this is one of the reasons why they, why it was chosen to go with the split dosing of apixaban to improve some of the safety outcomes. Hmm. The other, so with cancer, you can use whatever you want. If they have an upper GI malignancy, just be careful. Um, whatever you want, I mean, whichever DOAC you want, unless they have <laughs> upper GI malignancy. Garlic, whatever, just go. Yeah, garlic, but, sure. But avoid dabigatrin. Okay. Yeah, Stuart, I, I know. Yeah, we haven't been talking about dabigatrin. Um, oh, I hate it. We've been talking about the 10A inhibitors mainly. <laughs> For end-stage renal disease, so we asked Dr. Strife about this. I know there was some, uh, there was one study in AFib that was still pending at the time, but f- he had been using for patients with EGFR even less than thirty or less than twenty-five. Uh, he had still been using the full-dose apixaban, but it, that's that is just expert opinion at this point. There wasn't a lot of information to say how safe that was. So I, I think I would consult your local pharmacist uh, if you have patients with a, a very low EGFR yeah. uh, or patients on dialysis before using those medications. And this is something that we can readdress in the future because a lot of the trial data that we have available looking at in-stage renal disease or advanced chronic kidney disease was actually published this year. And the one of the other things, which is I think a quick hit would be, Paul, the IVC filter conversation. I thought that was going to be a pun. <laughs> oh, actually, can we, real quick, um, just talking about special patient populations, I know in terms of we're, we're trying not to talk everyone into making the diagnosis of antiphospholipid syndrome, but I feel like I actually have a fair chunk of outpatients that have had a history of venous thromboembolic events and had that diagnosis. And I thought actually the point made that DOACs are not the treatment of choice. We're very DOAC happy now. We love them as agents, but unfortunately evidence shows that they're not great for antiphospholipid syndrome specifically. And warfarin is the preferred agent. And it, I thought it was super interesting about the use of INRs to, to sort of follow along to see how effective you're, you're, you're doing. Do you remember any of that conversation at all? Yeah. The INR is suspect if they have a lupus anticoagulant. So you, you need to be aware of that. Right. But not the, not the cardiolite, but not the, the beta two glycoprotein for, for some, for, I'm sure there's an excellent reason I'm not smart enough to actually know, but it's it, the, yeah, the point, especially the point of care INR is, is not super duper reliable, but you are stuck with warfarin for those patients specifically. And so to round things out, uh, I know people always love to put in IVC filters when someone has, quote, high clot burden. While we all agree that patients with high clot burden, you should you should worry about those patients, um, it's just not quite clear yet uh, whether or not uh, there's there's an actual benefit there. I know there was something in uh, Journal Watch some, somewhat recently uh, for super sick patients with massive pulmonary embolism. Um, but I would say for the majority of patients, both Dr. Strife and Dr. Friedman said that IV, IVC filters, they don't use them very often. When you do use them, make sure you 
take them out. They are removable for a reason um, because the struts can break, the filters can migrate, they can perforate through the wall of the, like erode through the wall of the IVC. And there is a recurrent risk. Um, they do heighten the risk for a recurrent DVT because you are putting something that's blocking flow in uh, the main pipe back to the back to the heart. So uh, IVC filters, definitely um, be careful with them. Um, and uh, still, still not great evidence to suggest that they're treating anything except your anxiety. But yeah, there's actually a, a couple of nice reviews that looked at this, and really the indications are if you just can't anticoagulate, like that's kind of it. Otherwise, there's, there's you know, there's they've been historically used in trauma, but the evidence is poor for them. Just it's it's for if you can't anticoagulate, and then also don't forget to take them out, and that's all you need to know about IVC filters, and as much as I can tell. All right, so we will have some abbreviated show notes for this episode. Uh, this will be available for uh, CME credit through our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Uh, please let us know how you like these episodes. We'll be doing a couple more over the next few months on various topics, uh, trying to really distill down previous shows. And so with that, we'll get to the outro. <laughs> It's always good to intro the outro. It just really set the audience's expectations up. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole, question mark. Tango ombre. <laughs> Ooh, I... <laughs> I liked it, Paul. It made my stomach hurt. Um, get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, Matt, Stewart, and Paul. And to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I would be remiss if we did not thank uh, the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're presumably hearing right now, and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing this mess. And as always, I remain <laughs> Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. <laughs>